Longreads is supported by the Star King School for the Ministry based in Oakland. Star King is a progressive theological school offering programs rooted in Unitarian Universalist values of justice, sustainability, and anti-oppression. To learn more, visit sksm.edu slash jacobin. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. In the past few years, Peru has experienced several waves of political turbulence. The latest cycle of unrest began when Pedro Castillo was ousted as president last December. State security forces have killed dozens of people protesting against Castillo's removal from office. Channel 4 News carried this report towards the end of January. Deep in the Peruvian Andes, local people have taken control of the mountain roads. They are supporters of the deposed president, Pedro Castillo, who was arrested in December after trying to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. Most here are poor, indigenous farmers and miners who work southern Peru's resource-rich land but see little in return. Castillo, a left-wing former union leader, promised to change all of that. And these protesters believe he was overthrown by a corrupt political elite in the capital, Lima, who have never done anything to help them. Violent protests have spread across Peru since Castillo's removal. Clashes with police have led to more than 50 deaths and hundreds injured. Castillo's successor, President Boluarte, has done little to quell the anger, refusing to resign and calling the protests terrorism. The protesters call her a traitor. The political questions being posed in Peru and other Latin American countries today have a long history behind them. A century ago, the Peruvian intellectual Jose Carlos Mariátegui tackled many of those questions in his work from the legacy of European colonial rule to the struggle of indigenous communities for rights and recognition. Mariategui died at the age of just 35, but his political writings became a touchstone for Latin American radicals. Our guest today is Mike Gonzalez. He's an historian of Latin America and the author of several books, including In the Red Corner, The Marxism of Jose Carlos Mariategui. What were the main features of the system that ruled over Peru at the time when Mariategui was born and during his formative years? Peru is a country of, I mean, it's really three countries in one. There's a coastal area, which is where the agriculture and the main cities and the industry is. There is the vast two-thirds of the country is the Amazon, is the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest. And then the rest is the high Andes, highland Peru with Cusco, the ancient Inca capital, as its centre. So Mariátegui was born in the, in the far south in a town called Moquegua. But the Peru he was born into in 1894 had just come out of a period called the Pacific War, which was in fact a, a, an armed conflict between um, Chile and Peru and Bolivia. And, uh, you know, that had completely reshaped the situation in Peru. 
that area, you know, Peru was bigger before Mariati was born. The southern part of, of Peru was still belonged to Peru until what was called the Pacific War in 1876, then led to a conflict. And the conflict was economic because the country's economy was really based on two things. One was, if you'll excuse the expression, shit, that was the guano or fertilite, the guano on the Pacific Islands, guano being, uh, as I said, bird shit and, and a highly effective fertilizer. And then from the northern part of what is now Chile, the deserts of Chile, which is now a copper mining area, but at the time, the main export was salitre or nitrate, again, for fertilizer and for explosives, saltpeter. So that was the, the basis of the economy. And when the Pacific War essentially, Chile simply took over the economy. And in the reality of the of that world, the Chilean economy was, was heavily backed and heavily intervened by British capital. So when Mariati was born, in a sense, Peru was um, nursing its wounds from the loss of, of this important kind of economic asset. He, he he was born just to the north of this this area, kind of rather barren area that he was born into. So the victory of Chile in the Pacific War really brought um, Peru to its knees in some ways, and the and the the new uh, authorities in Peru were entirely d- dependent on British capital, which really took over both the profitable parts of what had been the Peruvian economy and then moved in on what would later become the profitable areas of the economy, particularly mining and particularly the export agriculture on the coast. But essentially the transformation of that in the economy and the emergence of a new kind of economy was taking place during the early years of, of Mariategui's life, which he commented on. So he, as he, you can imagine, in Moquegua, he could look out on the mountains, the Andes Mountains, and in those Andes Mountains, there persisted a poor economy of indigenous, small indigenous farmers and indigenous communities essentially living off, um, uh, off uh, herding llamas and so on. And it was a community which was dominated by if you like, a corrupt and repressive rural landowning class, which was slightly different from the the class of landowners who, in the coastal areas, because what was emerging was um, a new cotton agriculture, export agriculture, particularly in cotton and sugar, which was, again, as those became the dominant areas, they were dominated and controlled by foreign capital. So by the time, around the time Mariatica was born, you could say, and he analyzes it in great depth and very powerfully in his seven essays, which was, this was an economy dominated by foreign capital, which has simply taken over the economy of Peru and um, invested in the areas which would become profitable for the country, but they would be areas in which the vast, from which the income went abroad, went to the United States, to Europe, and particularly to Britain. Uh, eventually, it would be a, an economy based on mining, based on uh, cotton and sugar agriculture, and to an extent on copper. But as as um, Mariati was bro- growing up, there was a small emerging manufacturing industry as well in and around Lima. And uh, that became very important, that textile 
it was a textile manufacturing industry, right? So by the end of the century, there were about, well, about, about possibly about 7,000 industrial workers in Peru. So that's the kind of country it was, this divided country between an Amazon rainforest, which was the center of, 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 a, of a rubber industry, the high Andes dominated by um, rural landowners and the coastal area, which was um, run essentially foreign on behalf of foreign capital by a class of bureaucrats, politicians and landowners who worked to get, who worked really as agents of foreign capital. So that was the Peru that Mariatigi grew up in. What was Mariatigi's own social background and how did he begin finding his feet as a writer and also as a political activist? Mariatigi's background, his, his, um, his mother was a, a, a woman of indigenous origins, a seamstress. His father, and the name is a kind of aristocratic Spanish name, Mariatigi. His father was, you know, a member of the aristocratic class and clearly did not spend an enormous amount of time with his wife, although they had they, they had three children between them. But um, essentially he grew up in poverty, despite his, you know, aristocratic name. And then as a very young, as a young boy, uh, an incident in the school playground shaped his life, really, which was that he, he was injured. What it was, the effect on is not clear. It's not clear what he had. But I've heard it described as tubercular rheumatism. Anyway, he was very ill. And for years, really, he was bedridden, effectively bedridden. And his mother then uh, moved him further north and eventually to Lima, where he moved with her. So it was what would be described as a humble background. What we do know is that he didn't waste those four years uh, when he was sick. He read voraciously. He read not just in Spanish, he read in French. Because it is surprising when you read, I mean, he died very young. So the level of his culture, of his knowledge, of the breadth of his reading is quite surprising. And especially for somebody from the background from which he came. But as it happened, he ended up anyway in Lima. And through contacts of his mother's, I think, ended up very young at the age of 15, working in the, in the main newspaper in Lima. You know, he was somebody whose education had at least been delayed by his illness. And uh, it was an illness which would affect and shape, eventually shape his life. But he, he went to Lima. A bit about Lima. I mean, Lima was a, you know, is, an, is a colonial city where, you know, the affluent middle class lived and and its adjoining town, which is the port of Callao. So he arrived at in Lima to work at La Prensa, at the newspaper. I don't quite know what the name of his job might be, but I think he just carried print around the place. He was a he was a kind of print runner. But one of the things he was charged with quite early on was reading the cables that came from international news agencies which maybe gave him a kind of sense and a knowledge of, of what was happening beyond Peru. Because I think it's important to understand that Peru was very, very marginalized country. Some of the countries of Latin America, like Argentina, Uruguay, Mexico, were expanding and growing. But Peru was marginalized. And um, the world he went into was a world quite isolated from the rest of the world. 
So the, those cables must have been quite significant. But anyway, he, he you know, in the newspapers, he met up with some of uh, Peru's intellectuals, artists, who were kind of associated in one way or another with the newspaper. Many of them wrote for the newspapers, and he met them. There's a street in Lima called Giron de la Unión, which now is a bit, you know, down at heel. But at the time was always regarded as the major kind of avenue, the bohemian avenue of the city. And in there are a couple of cafes where the where the literati met. You know, the the writers and artists through would meet there in their avant-garde circles. Mariati, this you know, despite his background again, you know, was was clearly somebody with literary aspirations. He began to write poetry as a young man, and he found his way into these circles. I think it's important to, to realize that he was a, a you know, a, a Peruvian from a poor background with none of the aristocratic connections of, of the people he met in the cafes in, in this bohemian world, but he became very attached and involved to them and became a member of them. And there are photographs of that time, of him in the in the elegant cafes of central Lima, and it's quite interesting that he clearly has aspirations. He's very well dressed, which, you know, was not easy for somebody with very little money. But um, he, he obviously saw himself as a member of this community. And, these, these, and he had a lifelong interest in and involvement and passion for literature, which shows in all his work. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he writes a great deal about literature, both at that time and later when he's writing, when he's editing the magazine Amalta. He's fascinated by literature and by the avant-garde. But he's also critical of the avant-garde, because who are the avant-garde? They're largely the sons, and I mean mainly the sons, of um, well-off families, urban families. And uh, they're united by a kind of, well, that term that was used in Paris, ennui, that, that sense of kind of disillusionment and disenchantment with the world. And that became the dominant note of the writings of this um, of these circles. You know, he himself wrote in that mold. He was fascinated by it, but became later, as you can tell when he, you read his essay on literature in the seven essays, he became himself quite disillusioned with these groups. He felt that it was a kind of, if you like, it wasn't an engagement with the world. It wasn't a way of seeing the world and finding and identifying what was wrong with it, but a kind of literature of withdrawal, turning your back on the world, taking refuge in literature. But he was fascinated by that world for a while. But meanwhile, things were happening in Lima and in that society, which um, led to very different conclusions. This was a period, this is the First World War. During the First World War, you know, Peruvian exports were serving the war, for example, cotton, which was going to, to, to make up the uniforms of the soldiers. And um, the Peruvian economy was growing. And so then was the a small working class, because the main industry in Lima at the time was textile, textile factories. And um, the main one was called Vitarte, and it was owned by British Capital. And so what you see is that's the beginning, the, the first emergence of trade unions, of working class resistance. As a result of the war, prices, food prices rose very dramatically. The 
situation of most workers was extremely difficult. And in 1916, they formed a, a campaign to bring down the price of basic foods. And that was the first kind of collective, important collective resistance from, from the working class of Lima. We're probably talking about 7,000 or so actual workers in Lima Callao, but it's, the, it's, it's a nascent working class. Its political influence is anarchist. You know, they are influenced above all by anarchism and by a kind of mutualist trade unionism, which is essentially about a, a kind of collective insurance. But by 1916, this resistance became concrete and there was a, a major general strike in that year around the, the impossibility of maintaining a family on, you know, with the rising prices. And the reason that prices were rising was because food production was going down because the land was being devoted to export agriculture. So there was resistance. And Mariategui, still a very young man, what, 19, became involved with that movement. What he did was found two new newspapers. He and a close colleague of his, uh, Cesar Falcon, founded a newspaper. One was called Nuestra Epoca, which means Our Times, and the other one was called La Razón, which was, you know, means reason. And La Razón came out completely supporting and favouring the working class movement, the strikes, and identified with it and wrote for it. So he's a very young journalist, you know, with very little experience, but, you know, it was the first and only newspaper which took this position of supporting the workers' struggle. So, and when the strike ended in, as he did in 1918, with a victory, Mariati was carried through the streets by, um, by the, you know, the, the trade unionists and the militant workers. He was regarded as an ally of the working class movement. You know, how you come to that with, very little background is, isn't very clear, except that he read and he was somebody whose consciousness was moving rapidly from a kind of artistic resistance to more and more in the direction of political resistance. The new government was less enthusiastic about, about Mariati's contribution because the new government was under Augusto Leguia, claimed to be a modernizing government, but it was still very much the old ruling class, the old political class prevailing and dominating the society. And in the end, we don't know exactly how it happened, but in the end, Leguia called in Mariategui and his, and his colleague and said, um, and invited him to leave the country and go to Europe. Now, why that happened? What was it? Was it political exile? I think it probably was, although it was called formally a research trip. He was sent to Europe. What impact did that trip to Europe after the First World War have on his political thinking? He was a journalist, so he, he went, his brief was to go and interview and speak to people in, in Europe and to send back news from Europe. But this was a transformative moment. You know, when he arrived, he went first of all to via New York and in New York went to speak to the dockers in the port who were at that time on strike. And from there went to sail to Europe, to France, where he paused and interviewed and talked with a whole range of figures, uh, you know, radical figures in Europe. 
before eventually going to the place where we, he would spend most of the three years of, of his European trip, which was in Italy, which was crucial to his political development and education. But he met with others too. And this is, you know, this is, he, he arrives in Europe in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution, in which the central issues, the central topics of discussion and debate were revolution. You know, after the First World War, the Russian Revolution became the focus and the point of reference for every radical discussing where the future lay. Mariatigi, well, he said himself, he said, I, I got to Europe, and he says in a very typically modest way, you know, I came away with a wife and a few ideas. Well, the few ideas were Marxism. He came back, if you like, a Marxist. He learned his Marxism. Where he learned it, well, you know, we have two different kinds of, of, of work from him at this stage. He's interviewing artists, uh, radical figures, sending Mac dispatches. You know, he was, he was uh, making a living as a journalist, so he was regularly sending pieces back to Peruvian periodicals like Mundial, interviews, uh, uh, articles, short articles about writers, artists, and about the political situation. And um, the, I think the key moment for him politically was his time in Italy. He was at, in 1921, the Congress of the, of the Italian Socialist Party was at Livorno, which is in the north of Italy. And... Um, Mariatigi attended as a journalist and wrote about it. Um, but what was happening at that conference was a deep split because on the one hand, the Socialist Party was reformist. It claimed to be Marxist, but it understood that to be the Marxism of the Second International, not the Third. The Second International Marxism, which was essentially about the idea was not about um, uh, organizing organizing the working class or militancy was about, if you like, um, a kind of economic analysis towards an idea of the inevitability of a socialism that simply emerged out of economic development, that second international Marxism. But second international Marxism had a, its reputation was destroyed by its by its failure to adopt a position over the First World War particularly in Germany. So he arrived at Livorno, and what was going on at Livorno was it was an internal argument. On the one hand, the Socialist Party of Italy, this is just in the aftermath of war, is taking a position of reform, not revolution. But this is the time when you know, the whole of the left and the working class movement is excited by the implications of the Russian Revolution because the lessons of the Russian Revolution were carried around Europe as the new revolutionary direction. There was somebody came from the Petrograd Soviet, the original place where the revolution began to speak in Italy when Maliati was there at the car plants of northern Italy in Turin, and 40,000 people attended the meeting. So, you know, the interest was very high. And furthermore, it wasn't just that he was in Italy, it wasn't just that the Socialist Party was split, but it was the way in which it was split. Because what happened at that conference in Livorno was that there was an argument, a deep argument between the old socialists and those who 
saw themselves as carrying the message of the Bolsheviks for workers' revolution, with uh, the central form of organization for that revolution would be, uh, in Russia, had been the Soviets. And this was the, the model which the new revolutionaries pursued. And the argument then led to a split and to the creation of a Communist Party of Italy, one of whose leaders at the time was Gramsci. But the, the important thing is that the atmosphere in which this happened and the point of reference for Gramsci and the people around the Communist Party was the high level of and intensity of working class self-activity in the factories of Turin the factories which were occupied and dominated and controlled by their own workers. This idea that industry should be controlled by the working class through their own organizations and through their own committees. Now, the progress of that, of the factory occupations, is perhaps a little complex to go into. But the important thing was that if you wanted to talk about workers' self-organization, if you wanted to talk about organs of, of working class power, then you had a living example of it in the Turin factories in 1918 to 1919. And whether Mariategui knew or met Gramsci, he certainly met Gramsci because he was at the same conference, but to what extent they were, he was influenced by Gramsci is more problematic. I think you know, the great insights of Gramsci come a little bit later. Mariategui was young, but, but he, you know, they... For a while, he and some friends created a, a communist committee, a Peruvian, an embryo of a Peruvian communist party. But I think that was more than anything else a, a gesture of support towards the, the communists at Livorno. So the experience of Europe was an experience of, and it's very, you know, he would, he would then articulate that in great detail later. The experience of Europe was to see a working class in revolt, to feel and experience the impact of the Russian Revolution and to begin to see Marxism as about, this, if you like, the self-emancipation of the working class, in, in the words of, of Lenin. What kind of political activity did he engage in after returning to Latin America? Eventually he returned in 1923 to, to Peru, but he came back a different person. He came back a convinced Marxist, as he himself says, you know, I was a committed Marxist when I came back from Italy. And uh, that led him immediately to, to begin to see himself now in a different light, certainly not any longer as an avant-garde artist, but as an organizer. And a very vigorous, very active very committed organiser, despite the fact that he was really never in his life well. And, you know, in 1924, he had a leg amputated and, you know, his conditions were economically very fragile and his health was very fragile, but he seems to have been driven by an enormous energy and determination, which, you know, you note until the very last moments of his life. So he goes back, and then he's. This is a period in Latin America when there was the creation of a whole series of what they call people's universities. Started in in Argentina in 1918, uh, the university reform movement, because universities obviously had been entirely for the elite. Now here was an opportunity. Here was the creation of universities for the people, 
and Moriarty was invited to give a series of lectures there by the person running it. Now, the person running it is a figure who, in Peruvian history, is quite important, Victor Raúl Aya de la Torre, who was a contemporary of Mariatis and had been called upon to organise the people's universities. Mariatti and Aya had a relationship which became fraught and very difficult until finally they split from completely from one another a few years later because Aya would become a key figure in, a, in an organization which he created called the Popular Revolutionary Popular Alliance of Peru, Opera, which essentially was populist, a populist in the sense that it had no clear basis of commitment to build the revolutionary organization of workers, nor saw the centrality of the working class at all. But at the time, they were allies. And anyway, Aya had been involved in a series of demonstrations in Peru, and he was exiled from the country by Leguilla, by the government. So he passed the baton on to Mariategui, who gave a series of, of really incredibly, considering, you know, his youth and, and everything, you know, incredibly insightful lectures about the crisis. It was called, and the lectures were called The History of the, of the World Crisis. The audience were workers. And, you know, that, that really genuinely is the case. Two kinds of people, really. There was a new, young element of the, of the middle classes who had been part of the university reform movement and who, many of whom drifted towards Aya, Aya La Torre and Apra, but they were nevertheless part of the audience. And the other part of the audience were, were workers. We know they were there, they spoke, you know, there's a record of their presence. And Mariati had a reputation and support and, um, and, and genuine respect among the working class. So they attended his lectures at the People's University. Now, the path wasn't completely clear because anarchism was very influential in Peru still among, the, uh, among workers with its idea of, you know, of um, workers organizing themselves at, at, at the place of work. But there was no, there was no strategic thinking among the, the anarchist organizations in, in, uh, in Peru. They were advocates of resistance, of strike, and so on, but had no political vision, general strategic political vision to drive them forward. Nevertheless, you know, they were still extremely influential among the working class, and many of them, because, um, and, you know, Mariategui had come back to Peru as an advocate of the Russian Revolution. Now, the anarchists by this time were very critical of the Russian Revolution, both within Russia and outside it. And so they were, well, they were critical of Mariategui at these debates and these discussions. But that series of lectures is a tremendous panoramic view of the rise of, of, um, of the revolutionary movement in Europe and also a very clear-sighted critique of the defects of that movement. In other words, of reformism, for example, stepping back from the implications of building a revolutionary future, very clear about the dangers of the rise of fascism. And he writes... He has a, a whole volume of his writings called Letters from Italy, in which he develops an analysis of the emergence of Mussolini and of fascism and points to its dangers. So from then on, 
Maliatigi very quickly becomes uh, somebody who writes for the working class movement. And there are certain key ideas that he, he insists upon. I suppose the most important one is, and it comes out very quickly, almost as soon as he, he is back in, in Peru, in the series of writings, which is the concept of the United Front. Now, this, it's a very important concept, and it's what leads in the end to the split from Ayala Torre. What he says, he says in one essay, you know, we are, we are too few to split into fragments. We have to be united. And his concept of the United Front also argued very forcefully that the United Front had to be a place of unified action, but also of open, diverse political positions. There had to be political debate and argument inside the United Front as the ideas that would lead that would develop quite clearly. So in the end, his conflict with the Communist International came as a direct result of his insistence on this idea that the movement must be united but open to to debate and disagreement, of course. But from the other side, you know, the way in which um, the experience of the Russian Revolution was publicized and generalized was to insist on the... the um, well, on two things, the domination of the communist parties on the one hand, and on the other hand, the model of revolution as it had occurred in Europe, which should be applied universally. Now, that was the, that was the position of the, of the Communist International. It's a complicated story, but when the Communist Party of Italy was formed, it was because the Comintern, the Communist International formed in the wake of the Russian Revolution, had um, insisted that he did put forward what he called the 21 conditions. And that was, if you like, a, a kind of promise that had to, be, had to be accepted by any organization calling itself the Communist Party to follow certain principles and certain uh, strategies as put forward by, by the Communist Parties and by the Communist International. And... Um, you know, later on, that would become a source of deep conflict with Maliatigi. But anyway, so at this stage then, in the, in the 20s, he is talking to the working class movement. He's as an educator, but as an agitator. He's immediately building and creating the basis of working class organization. It's a very young working class. You know, they it's, it's young in the sense it's basically young people and it's, it, it's young in terms of its experience of organization. But he arrives then with a, a, a tremendous capacity to understand the need for organization, a series of very important manifestos in which he puts forward the key elements of, of, of working class organization, built around, as I said before, built around the basis of a, a united front. What was Mariategui's understanding of the social system in Peru and the ways in which it differed from capitalism as it developed in Europe, for example? Right. Well, I think the first and central thing was that he, he, he saw Peru as a country whose capitalist class had no, if you like, project for change. You know, the, the, the tasks of development, of, of change and, and of modernization would not, he said, be carried out by a capitalist class which was lazy, 
dependent on foreign capital and had no vision of its own. So he almost seemed to be arguing, and I don't want to push this one too hard, but he, he seemed to be arguing a concept of permanent revolution, that is the tasks of a bourgeois revolution will not be carried out by a Peruvian bourgeoisie which has neither the capacity nor the understanding to carry it through. So who then will carry through those tasks? How will the tasks of, of development, of transformation, of, and so on, be, be carried out? And that task will fall to the working class movement. That's as he saw it. And um, the domination of, of foreign capital, you know, which remained absolutely dominant in, in, you know, in the economy and elsewhere, I suppose it meant that they, the bourgeoisie was not capable of creating its own nation state. So what then would happen? There was, you know, a corrupt political class defending its own interests, defending Peru's continuing subordination to foreign capital. Well, you know, this was not the future for the working class movement, and it became central to Mariategui's thinking to look to a different kind of project. And the role of the indigenous population needs to be understood in, in that kind of light, because you know, who are the producing class? Who are the proletariat in this country? It's not just the industrial workers, the miners, many of whom, for example, mining was, was an important area of the economy, but the miners were, in many cases, people who had just come directly, immediately from indigenous communities. They were a first generation of miners who were, in many cases, in the Central Valley and the copper mines, were indigenous peoples, people who worked in export agriculture, was largely, you know, forced labor from the indigenous communities. And in the highlands, Mariategui described the system as semi-feudal, Effectively, landowners outside any kind of political control, acting through police chiefs, labor contractors, and the church to maintain the domination of indigenous communities who were to all intents and purposes slave labor. So that's how he saw the system and how it worked. And what kind of movement could confront this system in each of its aspects? only one which could draw together, again, the issue of a united front, only, only one that could draw together the different elements of the proletariat or of the revolutionary class, of the working class. And that could not happen unless the indigenous communities were included in that alliance and were part of it. So not only was it a, you know, a kind of necessity that they be part of it, but also that the if you like, the revolutionary impulse was built into indigenous culture, as he saw it. The whole history of indigenous populations were repeated histories of resistance and rebellion and of a class heavily and deeply exploited and oppressed. You can imagine in Peru, in in these highly differentiated regions, there was very little contact or knowledge on the coast of the life of indigenous peoples. Part of his job was, in, in a sense, to make each of, each section of the population aware of its reality. So the seven essays really draws 
which is his key work, drew together all these different aspects because it's seven essays, one on the economy, one on the land, one on the Indian, but also one on religion and one on culture. So all these aspects were drawn together to provide a picture of a nation, but not a nation state, a nation, a, a people nation, which would be the protagonist of any major movement for change. This is all happening at a rush, really. He's young, you know, he's working in very difficult conditions, but nevertheless he's developing programs for the organisation of, of, of a working-class movement. He's developing programs for education, I suppose, and he's writing about the culture and the task of agitation and organisation for, for the workers. But the key thing, I think, from very centrally, from very early on, is to include and embrace the indigenous communities in the program of socialist organization. And this was not a sentimental thing about a kind of moral duty to include the oppressed people, but because he saw the indigenous communities as an active element, an active, a powerful active element in that struggle. And he did that you know, on the basis of, a, of an idea that was very important to him, which was the idea of myth. In other words, what drives, you know, a community to rebel and resist? It is that it is driven by an idea, driven by a vision, driven by a, a kind of cultural aspiration. And he identified this, he got the idea from the, from the French thinker Sorel, the myth that drives people towards resistance. And the myth is, well, one commentator described it as an anticipatory vision, you know, some sense of the kind of world that you want to see, that you aspire to. And he finds that embedded deeply in the culture of of the indigenous communities because, you know, the traditional structure of community life among the indigenous peoples is based on a collective form of organization which is called the ayu in which the community acts as one in which the you know people see themselves as members of a community and the if you like the subject of history is the community now that you know it seems to me that 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 idea is not only very central to mariatigi but it also explains why contemporary indigenous movements like the, over the last few years, have rediscovered Mariyatigi because they have departed from that same principle, that, that there is embedded in indigenous movements a concept of community which embraces not just different layers of people, but also the relationship between man and nature, if you like. That there's a kind of continuity, an organic unity between human communities, nature, and so on, and that that is a principle around which to organise for the creation of a new and better society. That's, I think, what people have found in Mariatigi. What impact did Amauta, the journal that Mariatigi founded, have on intellectual life in Peru and Latin America as a whole? I, I think Amauta is extraordinary. I don't, you know, there, there was a very big international exhibition recently about Amalta, which went from Spain, uh, it was in the University of Texas and so on. It's available online as well. 
And it's worth looking because it's extraordinary at all sorts of levels. First of all, the name of the magazine is, is important. The Amalta is the kind of wise elder of an Inca community. But when Mariati first proposed the formation of a magazine, he said it was going to be called Vanguardia, the vanguard. So at that point, the dominant idea was the idea of a revolutionary vanguard. But by the time the magazine comes out, its emphasis is above all on, on the, the echoes of indigenous Peru. He, uh, the illustrations, which are, which are wonderful, emphasize and reflect indigenous Peru. But it is a magazine which is conceived as a broad platform of political debate. It comes back again to this, what I would describe as an, a completely anti-sectarian view of how a movement is built. So, you know, there's a wide range of arguments. There are three, you know, it goes through three phases. Originally, it's wider open to all sorts of views and is a magazine of, of debate and discussion, a magazine that covers politics, art, literature, and so on. It's actually, you know, it's very successful as a magazine. It sells several thousand every issue, and it's taken around by a kind of network of, of contacts, in, you know, outside Lima and in, into the country. But I think its influence is much wider than maybe than, than, than people have, have realized because it was produced in Peru, but it reached other parts of Latin America, it reached Chile, it reached Argentina. So it, it became to be regarded as a, as a key journal of socialist and Marxist debate. In its second phase, it becomes more clearly ideological, I think. You know, originally it was an open debate, and, and then later on it became a platform from which Mariategui's own arguments as a Marxist could be broadcast. And also, the seven essays were all initially published in Amauta. It was widely read, or read too by movements outside Peru. For example, in Nicaragua, you know, the, the movement around Sandino, it was read there, it was read in Bolivia, and supported by some of the key leaders, political leaders in those countries. And it lasted, you know, until the year of uh, Mariategui's death. But it was, I think, a journal which aspired to, well, it had a, a perspective which was indisputably Latin Americanist. Firstly, it wasn't Peruvian only, it was a, a magazine for the Latin American revolutionary left. And it, it was very effective. It was, it's very well produced. And it's it also, you know, very emphatic. I mean, it, it has lots of stuff, you know, elements of indigenous culture, uh, art based on indigenous culture, but it also discusses, you know, the issues of the avant-garde and so on at first. Though as the magazine becomes more kind of, I suppose, harder line may not be the way of describing it, but more emphatically political, then, you know, he's more interested in the left and the culture of the left. It reprints the writers of the of the European left, it's in contact with Europe and so on. You know, it reprints all, all sorts of articles about the left in, in the world and all sorts of articles about literature and also reproduces some of the literature, for example, some of the literature coming out of Russia, um, some, of the, some of the literature coming out of Italy, because it always 
not yet he always has this this very wide span of interest in culture because for him culture is also a revolutionary force you know with this idea of the myth the vision that drives revolutionary movements forward as well but at the same time he's a very emphatic you know for example when he talks about representing the indian he says you know we have to be very clear that the state of the, the, the condition of the indian will be improved by a clear economic program which will restore the land to the indigenous communities so it's you know it's not a moral issue it's a, it's, it's clearly an economic one so amalta then is very important but immediately curtailed unfortunately you know he mariatigi dies in in 1930 and then there's an argument essentially there's a battle for control of amalta because amalta had also been quite clearly an instrument through which to advance the argument against alpra alpra was a kind of populist formation which in the end aya ended up arguing that the future of peru would be in forging an alliance with what he called progressive imperialism mariati was emphatically clearly unequivocally anti-imperialist whereas um aya was much more ambivalent he became a very important figure in peru but there is a kind of lack of clarity a confusion about the ideas that he presented like all populisms it's it's everything and nothing whereas um and one of the last things pieces and one of the most important but one of the last pieces that mariatigi wrote was called the anti-imperialist perspective which is very very clear about that and is essentially directed against apra and the ambiguities and the unresolved ambiguities of of the apra program you know in the end apra ended with a you know the the corrupt and um oppressive government of alan garcia and kind of really died to all in, to all intents and purposes so anti-imperialist against against apra so I think Mariatigi saw the audience for, for Amalta as the same audience that had attended the popular universities a new generation of young intellectuals young mainly provincial intellectuals who came to Lima to the university and who were open to these to these new ideas plus you know a working class audience and an audience in in a limited audience in the indigenous communities which he hoped would read amalta though it would it would be circulated and distributed much more widely than that but as soon as he died i think there was one foot last issue edited by a, a close collaborator and then amalta stopped and it stopped essentially through the um, through the pressure of the comintern That leads on to the next question that I wanted to ask you as a general point what was the relationship between Mariatigi and the Communist International in that period of the late 1920s mm-hmm. I mean that's very important the common turn by I mean we're talking now uh, as we move into 1927 1928 you know what's going on in the common turn is is an extreme sectarian line you know the class against class policy which dominates the common term now 
you know, will be immediately obvious that class against class is the polar opposite of the kind of strategy that Malayatigi was trying to develop. And the Comintern was, in a sense, it wasn't interested in Peru. That was the first thing. They were interested in mainly in Argentina and Mexico and concentrated their efforts there, you know, because these were, in a sense, more modern economies with a larger working class and larger industrial working class and with a much um, uh, larger base from which to build. But the comment, above all, the, the issue was who prevails, who dominates, who determines the kind of policies and the kind of strategies that develop in individual countries. Now, the common turn existed in some way, this may be a little crude, but it existed fundamentally to impose a model of revolution which would be based on the European experience. In other words, it would be the reproduction of the European and the Russian experience for every country in the world. It would become a model. And Mariatigi's contribution was to say, and he, there's a very famous phrase that he uses, um, that, you know, socialism in Peru can't be calque copie, can't be a copy of Europe. That's not what we're about. We are about discovering our own interpretation and understanding of what it means to make a revolution, of what socialism means, basing ourselves in the particular aspects of our own history which make sense of those terms for our region. So this was the debate. And, and so the you know the the sudden switches of policy from the common turn, the, the move from popular front dramatically to the hardline sectarianism of class and class against class and back again, which were determined in every case by the needs of Russian foreign policy, of Soviet foreign policy. It was expected that the Communist Party would simply follow obediently these switches and changes. And Maliatiki resisted that. And he resisted it on, on, on very clear grounds, and that is that our revolutionary strategy will only function if it is embedded in, rooted in, our experience and our reality. So the seven essays is not just an, a kind of an academic study. It is a careful, detailed you know, description and in analysis of the nature and structure of Peruvian society on the basis that that would then be a necessary instrument to create any kind of meaningful revolutionary strategy for the country. Now, the line of the common turn, and of course one significant and central element of it, was the inclusion of and the recognition of the indigenous communities and their traditions. You know, because that was partly what Peru was, and that was central to, uh, to Mariategui's vision. And uh, the Comintern's general line on indigenous communities was to ignore them, to say that they belonged, that they were pre-capitalists and therefore, you know, they had to go through their own development process. They had to create their own, almost to create their own bourgeoisie or at least go through their own experience of, of change and development. And therefore, you know, and they couldn't be, and that had to be at their pace in their own in their own reality. And um, and so what the argument was, 
just as Moriarty was approaching the moment of his death, the Comintern's general position on indigenous communities was for them to have separate and different development. In other words, they were for the separate development of indigenous communities, which being translated meant their isolation from the rest of the of, of the of the of the movement. Now that was anathema. That was the polar opposite of what Maliati was arguing for. He argued that the inclusion of the different aspects of Peruvian history would be a an absolute condition of of being able to build any kind of successful movement. But the Comintern was adamant that the line coming from the Comintern had to be applied as a matter of discipline and as a matter of principle. And there was no brooking, no listening, no assimilation of any debate from below, no assimilation of the arguments that were coming out of the movement in those countries itself. Now, by the time this argument was going on, this was 1928, the Comintern was holding its first and only Latin American conference in Buenos Aires. And Mariati, he was too ill to go, but he sent three documents. One was the anti-imperialist perspective, which I mentioned earlier, and another was a a second on the question of race, and the third document on the question of class organisation. But I'm afraid that, you know, the the response to Mariati was well-prepared and um, it was met with derision, met with denunciation, you know, for, for kind of petty bourgeois populism by the by the representatives of the Comintern who were present at the Buenos Aires conference. The people who went to speak on behalf of Mariati's vision, Julio Portacarrero, Hugo Pesce, and so on, were simply dismissed with a wave of the hand. They were regarded as populists and people outside the revolutionary tradition. But by this time, Mariati was too ill to do anything about it, and in April of 1930, he died. Uh, Amauta lasted two further months before it, before it folded, and um, the legacy of Mariati was then fundamentally buried. I mean, the it, it was quite interesting that the the Communist Party, which then emerged, and which had emerged despite Moriarty's deep scepticism about the correctness of forging a Communist Party at that moment in time, because the movement hadn't been built. Um, but they, as soon as he died, that Communist Party was imposed under the leadership of a very, very questionable individual called Eldosio Ravines. And uh, the Communist Party existed, the uh, links with the indigenous communities were broken, and Mariati was kind of denounced, really. There's a, it's very interesting that in the middle 60s, the, the, you know, the Casas Americas, the Cuban cultural journal, published an article about Mariati, which essentially reproduced the denunciations of the Comintern 30 years earlier. So he was just marginalized as a kind of a half-forgotten historical figure who, when he was mentioned, was claimed by the Communist parties as a as a kind of founder and precursor of the Communist parties, when in fact his whole life had been devoted to, to building a different kind of perspective. 
As a final question, perhaps drawing together the different strands of what you've been talking about today, mm-hmm. how would you characterize Mariátegui's legacy for Latin American Marxism continuing right up to the present day? It's very interesting, very interesting and, and kind of not easy to answer. But, but let me put it this way, that, that you know, Mariátegui was, of course, his work was always available and he was well known in, in Peru, but I'm not sure how well known he was outside Peru. I, I think he had been, if you like, politically buried by, by, the, by the Stalinist tradition. And then suddenly his name begins to be used and, and pronounced as the pink tide arises in Bolivia, in Peru, in Venezuela, the writings of the, the ideas of Mariátegui suddenly become current again, and uh, and and that, that's very interesting. Why? I think there are several reasons. One, because he is a representative of a Latin American Marxism, a Marxism which applied the um, insights, the instruments, the analytical instruments of Marxism to an examination of Latin America and drew its political conclusions from that reality and from that experience. In other words, to go back to that famous phrase of his, Latin American Marxism could not be a simple copy of Europe, of the European experience. It had to arise out of and be embedded in the soil of Latin America, of Latin American history, of the collective memory and so on. Otherwise, it you know, would have no relevance. It would be always be something introduced externally. Whereas the, the you know the Marxism spoke of the self-emancipation of working people, and that meant really drawing their instruments of resistance out of their own experience. So suddenly in the in the eighties and nineties, as Stalinism collapses around around the world and in Latin America, a space opens if you like, to rediscover Latin America's Marxist tradition, Marxist thought in Latin America. And it it is particularly relevant, and if we're talking about legacy, centrally relevant, in the case of Maliatigi, because Maliatigi talks about, you know, the indigenous experience as a central feature and a central element of a Latin American Marxism. It's Marxist, Marxist in, in that it is the theory and practice of revolution, Marxist in the sense that it has a, a clear set of instruments of analysis which start from the, the nature of a class society, but it also is able to embrace and able to include the indigenous experience and so on. That idea of the organic community, that idea of the organic community of, of man and circumstance, the idea of a myth of, a, of an anticipatory vision born out of the real experience and the collective history, the collective memory of Latin Americans. And suddenly, that is exactly the, the, the kind of thing that is being discussed by the new movements of the Pink Tide, particularly in Bolivia, in Venezuela, and in Peru and Ecuador. Suddenly, those ideas become relevant and meaningful because those traditions are, in a sense, feeding and encouraging and amplifying the revolutionary perspectives. In other words, as people begin to to mount collective resistance again, 
the instruments they have to hand and the reference points they have can no longer be the revolutions of, of Eastern Europe. They have to be points of reference that come from their own history, from their own understanding. So it's no accident that the movements not only include indigenous communities, but also take from those indigenous communities and their history some of the lessons and some of the some of the methods of a new kind of, of, of mass of collective resistance, which is based on you know the insights that come from thinkers like Mariati, of whom there are very few, but which come and derive from directly from the experience of Latin America, its history, its reality, and so on. And that's why I think if, if we're talking about a legacy, it's that. It's that way of thinking, it's that method of, of understanding, that conception of what it is that drives movements forward. Many thanks to Mike Gonzalez for that introduction to the life of Jose Carlos Mariategui. If you want to know more, Mike has written about Mariategui for Jacobin and his book, In the Red Corner, is available from Haymarket. Long Reads is brought to you in association with Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles. One audiobook you can buy from Pluto is A Feminist Theory of Violence, A Decolonial Perspective by Françoise Vergès. Angela Davis has praised the book as a robust decolonial challenge to carceral feminism. You can order A Feminist Theory of Violence now by going to tiny.one slash jacobin.